tonight is a reunion with my good friend, Gary Gallagher. Gary is back. Gary, how are you? I'm all right. Thank you for having me back, John. Oh, thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure to, to talk with you, Gary. And and when we can sit back and relax and have a good time, that's what it's that's what it's all about. <laughs> I'm in favor of that, yes. <laughs> yes, especially after moving. You're in favor of just kicking back and relaxing. I, I just finished moving. I've been dreaming about moving books. I'm pretty soon those dreams will end, I hope. It's quite a it was quite a quite a move. Quite a move. Yeah, that, that can turn into a nightmare. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone join us. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Gary Gallagher is the John now th the third professor in the history of the American Civil War emeritus at the University of Virginia. He is the author or editor of more than 40 books on the Civil War and its memory. How many are we up to, Gary? I don't know. But that that, we, know, we know it's over 40. <laughs> it is over 40. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. And uh, tonight's book, that we're, the main book that we're going to be talking about tonight is Civil War Witnesses and Their Books, New Perspectives on Iconic Works, brought out by LSU Press, edited by Gary and Stephen Cushman. Uh, I'll be placing a link in the chat momentarily for you to be able to pick up your copy from LSU Press. Uh, the first in the series, which came out in 2019, right, Gary? Mm -hmm. It did. Uh, was Civil War Writing, New Perspectives on Iconic Texts. And uh, so you got the two volume set going on. Will there be a third, Gary? I think there is going to be a third. Steve and I have talked about it. And we have some people who wanted to be and we thought were going to be in the second one. And then for, for various reasons, they couldn't be. So I think there will probably be a third one, probably in a couple of, but, and that'll be the end of it. That'll be the that trilogy. Enough. <laughs> enough. Yeah. You can, you can tell how much of a, of like a, history nerd, military nerd I am, because I had your two books laying here. I read through them here in the office. And next to it was uh, Machiavelli's Art of War. And it's like, this. I just have, I live an odd life, Gary. <laughs> many, many of us do. Yes, yes, indeed. No, but this was a, a fantastic book. And, and I am so happy that we get to dive into it and discuss it. How do you find uh, the people to to write this gary do you just uh say well i know a couple people who could touch on this subject and would probably fit into this very well or how do you go about finding people that to do these essays well we have uh that several people are in both of those books we have people who incline toward this sort of uh literary slash historical approach to the war steve cushman of course has written two wonderful books on that steve holds a chair in english at UVA, although I think at heart, he's at least as much a historian as he is a poet mm -hmm. and, and literary guy. He and I taught a course together. We offered it three times called Civil War Voices for a little undergraduate seminar where we used iconic texts to get at various dimensions of the war in this small class. And it was in the course of doing that that we decided that some of these texts had not been really looked at in many, many years with an eye toward what they do and what they don't do for people who are are approaching them as we go into the third decade of the 21st century. That's where the idea for the first book came from. And we had friends who were working on, the, Elizabeth Barron is working on a biography of James Longstreet. So she was a logical candidate uh, in, in, this set, in, in the more recent book to write about uh, from Manassas to Appomattox. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, we have a range of people. They're mostly senior people, but we have one uh, much younger scholar in this book, Cecily Zander, uh, who 
had worked with Elizabeth Bacon Custer's texts in some of her work on the U.S. Army uh, in the late antebellum years and then in the West. And so we had Cecily look at Elizabeth Bacon Custer's three sets of memoirs. Uh, I've always been interested in, in origins of the lost cause and how the lost cause unfolded. And one of the key uh, people there uh, was the the crucial staff officer on R.E. Lee staff who wrote two who wrote two books. So anyway, we came at them from different from different directions. Steve wanted to deal with George B. McClellan, McClellan's own story, mm-hmm. which no one has really written seriously about, which is an anomaly in the literature. So we 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 picked people for different reasons, and um, but mainly because we knew they were interested in some topic and might want to talk about a crucial book. Uh, in the earlier volume, Catherine Shively's writing a biography of Jubal Early. So she looked at Jubal Early's memoirs in that one. Uh, William Blair, uh, in, in this more recent book, looked at the rise and fall of the slave power, which was a monumental work that is essentially forgotten now. It's really odd the degree to which Henry Wilson's book uh, has been. <laughs> it's just it's not on anyone's radar screen anymore, even though in terms of its themes and attitudes, it's as close to having a modern take on a lot of these issues as any of these books possibly could. Yeah, I was so surprised by that. And I'm one person who has neglected to read that work, like a lot of other people. Well, it's, it's like, wow, okay. fat volumes. It's easy to neglect to read it. And, <laughs> and parts of it aren't exactly scintillating in terms of the, the movement of the narrative, but it's a really important book and a really important counterpoint to a lot of the Lost Cause work, which is much better known uh, than mm-hmm. Henry Wilson's book. Wilson, a very prominent radical senator, vice president uh, later, as Bill uh, observes in his essay, he's one of the most important figures that no one knows anything about. And he wrote one of the most important books that no one's ever read. Uh, that right. came out of the Civil War generation. Three, uh, I mean, a really huge series of three books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, that that was just fascinating to me. And the the piece uh, that Elizabeth Aaron did on Longstreet, which is starts the book out, uh, really appealed to me too. Because I, as a younger uh, you know student of history and stuff, I read Longstreet at Gettysburg, written by Longstreet's wife. By yes, and, and I was like, "Wow, okay, we're bringing this back up again. This is a different one because someone told me, oh, you need to read because I had been learning a lot of the lost cause kind of ideals of Longstreet.' Right. And someone said, "Well, you need to read Longstreet at Gaysburg," and uh, it was one of those things where it's like, "Okay, you're getting two sides of this story now, and somewhere in the middle has to be the truth." And I was really interested to see her work in this. Well, and she turned up a, a great deal of material that shows that there's a really important reconciliationist impulse behind Longstreet's book, which no one has really dealt with before. And that it, and that it, he, his, his political side and his memoirist side uh, overlapped in important ways. And he's sort of working with reconciliationists who have one eye toward former union opponents, but also trying to affect a, a reconciliationist stance with, with his former comrades, which was much harder in fact, than dealing with his former enemies, as it turned out. Yeah, I there was a couple things that were in that essay. I'm not going to give them all away, but there were a couple right. of things in that essay where it was like, I never knew that he took part in this event. And I never knew that at, at times it seemed like he wasn't looking for the standard white reconciliation. He was like 
sometimes working alongside uh, persons of color in different ways that really angered a he lot was. of uh, Which a was lot of part of why he so alienated so many former Confederates. Longstreet's yeah. a really interesting and I think more complicated figure than a lot of people think. And, and Barron's essay really teases out that complexity in a very useful way. I think anybody who reads that essay is going to, as you did and as I did when I read it, I, I learned things from that essay. I've been reading about Longstreet since I was a little boy. Uh, and I learned I learned a number of things from her essays. Very well done. Mm -hmm. I, I think coming up as a student of this period during the 90s and such, when we still were getting the lost cause mm -hmm. stuff, especially in, the, in school, we were still hearing some of this stuff. Right. And seeing the new essays coming out has really challenged people like myself to look at someone like Longstreet a little bit differently or even McClellan uh, differently Steve, as well. Steve Cushman's essay on McClellan. I mean, Steve is neither. Most things on McClellan are either I love McClellan and he's not given his due or I can't stand McClellan. He, uh, the, it, there's not much of a middle ground. Steve, right. there's none of that in Steve's essay. What Steve really gets, I mean, the, the, you finish his essay and you think the main thing you need to do is take him a lot more seriously. No one's dealt with the religious dimension of George B. McClellan, I think, as well as Steve does in, in this mm -hmm. essay on his memoir, which, of course, he didn't really write. It was put together from some things he wrote, from excerpts from the letters that he wrote to, to his wife, from his official reports and so forth. It's a constructed narrative, uh, but it's it's important and it is... It's it, the themes that Steve finds, one being re, the religion and another one being just the, the love of the soldiers that went toward McClellan went the other way, too. That's really clear from everything in McClellan's own story. He really did. Uh, I mean, he he had a tremendous bond with his men. Really yeah, it, yeah, it really seemed like the men knew it, too. They did. And they latched on to, in addition to an ego that's so off-putting that it's hard to read a lot of McClellan in a row sometimes. I mean, it's, I, I have my limits. He, he, he's a fascinating guy. He really, and Steve does full justice to him in his essay on McClellan's own story, which is in the shoulder straps, that famous shoulder strap mm -hmm. series. That mm -hmm. with, with McClellan, it seemed to me always like, He's walking a fine line between ego and just confidence, you know, yes. and there, is, there is a difference. Ego, you can't really back it up. You just say what you think you can do and you go with it. And, and I confidence. think in an interesting way, in some places, a really lack of confidence. I mean, I think some of his yeah. some of his over the top blustering about himself is really papering over a lack of confidence. It's, it's fascinating how all of those yeah. things sort of weave in and out with him. Overconfidence, lack of confidence. It's, it's, and I'm sure his wife must have gotten some, Ellen Marcy McClellan must have gotten some of these letters and just thought, really, George? Really? <laughs> yeah. Can we step yeah. back a little bit? Can we spell self-awareness, boys and girls? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, because he seems so insecure at times. And, and a lot of people who haven't read the essay yet or haven't read, uh, uh, this work on him previously, they're going to be like, wait, McClellan's insecure with himself because all no. we've ever heard is he's this blustery, egotistical, completely person. secure, overweeningly right. secure. But right. I, but I think that's not always the case. And he is, uh, and I think that that comes through in, in Steve's essay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed 
those two a lot because it went counter to what I had learned for years and years. Now I had respect for Longstreet as far as the commander's concerned. Sure. Yeah. But it was but it was that post-war years I didn't know about that really no. intrigued me. And I think it's gonna intrigue a lot of readers uh going forward. It, it, yes, and it's is it, of course it's it's although the Gettysburg controversy came to be the thing that people most associated with Longstreet, it wasn't his wartime activities, I think, that really alienated a lot of former Confederates. It's just mm -hmm. post-war activities that do. That's what really got him in trouble. And they then they just projected that back into, in, into the war to, at, at Gettysburg, and then they transferred that to Second Bull Run. How he was how he was a pernicious influence there, and I mean, it, it went in all directions. Yeah, it, it was fascinating because you still see the resistance from some of his former comrades in their own way, and then he's just like, you know basically going with, well, I was there at Appomattox. I know what happened. It, it's, he was right there at the very end and said, don't surrender. But I mean, it, it's yeah. Walter Taylor's two books are very interesting in that regard. The one that came out in the mid seventies. And then the other one came out in 1906. He hardened in his attitude toward Longstreet by 1906. It's a much harsher take on Longstreet in the second book than in the first book that Walter mm -hmm. Taylor wrote. And that just shows the work that all those years of, of lost cause controversy uh, the, the impact that they had. When we look at books like that, Gary, where we're looking, we're looking at memoirs in general, and and there's a weakness to not a weakness, but there is a thing you got to look for in memoirs. It's it's right. It's it's dedicated to a certain audience. Sure. And it's not like it's not made in the moment. So there's you're going to say certain things in the memoir that maybe, or you're going to leave certain things out that you were going to say in a memoir that you would have put in. It's it's direct to an audience. We see that with Taylor. Uh, like you said, because over time, it seems like stances can harden or soften. They can go either way. Taylor definitely hardens up on that. And I believe sees the uh, kind of uh, political turmoil that he can cause in his own way as far as reconciliation is concerned. Yes, he I mean, his first book, uh, the first book is all about numbers. And that's the key mm -hmm. thing about Taylor, because Confederates, because I mean, one of the Taylor is really right at the center of two of the main tenets of the lost cause. And one is, is Lee's greatness and all of the qualities that made him great as far as former Confederates and many people in the, in, in among on the union side, even and mm -hmm. Taylor's proximity to Lee. He's right next to Lee for the entire war. He's, he's with Lee from the spring of 61 to Appomattox. No one is closer to Lee on a daily basis than Walter Taylor. So that gave him an authority when he talked about Lee, the man, but the other thing that he did, the other element of the lost cause where he's absolutely critical is with numbers. He's the one who oversaw the daily returns or the monthly returns in the Army in Northern Virginia. So he became the sort of final arbiter for questions about numbers, even for Lee. Lee turned to him for that as well. And so in those two ways, his writings are absolutely crucial. And the first book is is all about numbers. He really goes through the numbers carefully. And then in the second book, there's more of the more of the the qualities of Lee as a man and as a as a soldier. But his the fact that Taylor was right there for the whole time and part of his work was dealing with numbers gave him a tremendous stature among former Confederates and subsequent authors. Douglas Southall Freeman uh, mm -hmm. tribute to uh, how important Taylor and and Taylor was still alive when Freeman was a young man, but how important Taylor is to fashioning this Confederate narrative of the war. Mm -hmm. 
it, it it's almost like Taylor just saw it as his the rest of his duty to Robert E. Lee to get the facts straight for Robert E. Lee because he couldn't speak for himself. He absolutely did, and the fact that Lee went to him with questions about these numbers when Lee was Lee was thinking about writing uh, about the Army in Northern Virginia, as everyone in your audience knows, right after the war. And he corresponded with a number of his former lieutenants, but also with Taylor specifically on the question of, of numbers. Hmm. Was was there any when we're talking about Lee and we're talking about Longstreet and, and, and Taylor, was there anything before Lee's death that connected Longstreet and Lee together? Did they have any kind of like letters back and forth to each other to? to yes, they, they had some. And Lee never Lee never broke with Longstreet. When people would tell Lee that Longstreet was saying this or doing that, uh, Lee didn't. Lee didn't believe it. I don't think. I think Lee went to his death thinking that Longstreet had been uh, a very able and loyal lieutenant and a very good subordinate. And I, I just think that is what uh, the the other stuff came came later. It came later, and I think that that. The first book, in the first book, the fact that there's not a lot of that from Walter Taylor, not a lot of anti-Longstreet venom in the first book, sort of underscores the fact that Lee and Longstreet had a very good relationship uh, all the way through the war. Now, Lee was, un I think he was unhappy with him at Gettysburg. He was unhappy with Jeb Stewart. He was unhappy with Richard Yule. He was unhappy with A.P. Hill. He was unhappy with everybody right. at Gettysburg. And he should have been unhappy with himself. But I think that, I think that, one of the great things about Taylor's books is that he's, he's you can actually hear Lee's voice. And, and Taylor even talks about that, how he is reflecting attitudes at Confederate headquarters. This is what the attitude at Confederate headquarters was, which I think we can infer means this is what Lee's attitude was. Uh, Lee didn't write about it, but I'm going to go ahead and let you know what was going on here. And it's, it's very interesting to compare Taylor's post-war writings with his great wartime letters, which have been published. They were published a number of years ago. And it's, they, it's, it's very nice to, as you assess what he wrote in his memoirs, to see what he was writing during the war. And it, it, that was one of the fun things for me about writing this essay, was just seeing, just comparing. And he clearly drew on his letters in what he wrote after the war, his letters to the woman that he, that he married. Uh, mm -hmm. at the very end of the war and Mary are just as Richmond, literally as Richmond was falling. Right. So his later writings could almost be a reactionary to now Longstreet is speaking out against Lee after his death. And he's kind of like, well, I got to set this straight later he, on. He, he certainly, the, the, the first thing is the numbers. And then later it's just, it's Lee. Lee is, a, he, you don't get a lot in uh, you get some, but not a lot in Taylor's memoirs of the aggravation that Taylor had as Lee's staff. Lee had a tiny staff. He, mm -hmm. he tried and he, he didn't have nearly. Porter Alexander talks a lot about this, too. Lee was making a point about having a small staff because he thought too many generals had big staffs where they put their, you know, their their Fredo like uh, <laughs> brothers or their idiot third cousins to keep them safe from the rest of the war. Beauregard right. uh, had a gigantic staff, of course. Uh, but, and so Lee is making a point there, and it's a dumb point to make because he overworked his staff and he didn't have enough staff really to run an army. It, you need more men than he had to run an army. Taylor complained about that a lot in his letters during the war. He doesn't say much about that in his memoirs. Yeah, which, which underscores the point we talked about earlier where 
they're going to say one thing in the moment yep. and then you can clean it up later and you and clean it up later. Yeah. 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 And that's the, that could be a danger for using some of the memoirs as, you know, well, this is the way it was yeah. 20 it's, years previously. Memoirs often tell us more about the period at which the person is writing the memoir than they do about the actual events of the past. Although they can also be useful for the other. I mean, in the uh, Keith Bohannon wrote about John Gordon's reminiscences uh, in the first of these two volumes. And Gordon is known as a blowhard in a lot of, uh, yeah. I mean, he, he can't, he, his, the, the, when you read his memoirs, you're virtually certain that the very first thought in John Gordon's ever mind every morning was, what about me? Mm -hmm. How are people going to love me and know that I'm really important? The whole war always seemed to turn on wherever John Gordon was in his memoirs. And so a lot of people have always thought, and I've been one of them, and my friend Bob Crick, we've often mocked some of John Gordon's claims, like he was wounded five times at Antietam and almost drowned in the blood, you know, and so forth. Well, Keith yep. Bohannon went back to wartime newspaper sources from Georgia. John Gordon was wounded five times. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the stuff that he claimed turns out to be true, even though it seems like it probably wasn't true. So he he's useful in ways that I didn't used to think he was useful, but he's also very useful, Gordon is, in terms of lost cause things. He buys the whole Longstreet at Gettysburg baloney hook, line, and sinker in his reminiscences, which were published just after the turn of the century. And I think he knew better than that. I think he's just putting that because that's that's what people wanted to hear. Gordon did because that's right. what people wanted to hear. Right. Wow. I, yeah, it's it's crazy how that happened. And I've, and I've read Gordon stuff and I'm like, Okay, this guy. Okay, that's no guy seems like he's, Yeah, this guy seems like he's everywhere and it's all about everywhere. Yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah. And always making, and if only they'd done what John Gordon said to do, right. everything would have turned out better. Yeah. But he was Gordon a politician, we know. He was a very successful politician after the war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's, he's kind of like the Dan Sickles of the AMV. Uh, <laughs> only with two legs. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He didn't lose that leg, but yeah. That's, <laughs> He might lose a leg to stand on with some of us, but that's a different story altogether. Uh, there are uh, essays in here on on uh, two women during the war, uh, Phoebe Yates Pember yes. and uh, Maria Daly, which were, uh, you know, very well done by uh, Sarah Gardner and uh, J. Matthew Goldman. I, I thought right. that was fantastic that it goes back into uh, the Confederate kind of uh, hierarchy, if you will, of society with Phoebe Yates Pender. And sometimes she goes into this idea of what's ladylike and what's not ladylike in her memoirs. In her memoir. And then she's writing, it's just like Taylor, and she's writing something different, you know, to, to family. And it, it goes yeah. back to this idea of what are you putting in here that's going to be a little bit different than what you said at the time. And what is suitable for an audience to read? And Phoebe Pember really wanted an audience for her. I mean, she's, she has a really important position as chief matron at the largest hospital in the world, the Chimborazo, yeah. uh, by the end of the war. And she is, and her book is a very well-known book. Maria Leidig Daly's book is much less well-known. She's the, the wife of a Democratic judge, Irish Democratic judge in New York City, uh, very plugged into society in New York and very opinionated and and uh, with very sharp observations, both about other women and about all kinds of political figures and military figures. 
Uh, her diary is a wonderful look into the world of the democratic side of the war for the union. She and her and her husband both are. Uh, she doesn't care about emancipation. It's a war for union about her. She she has a very dismissive views of black people on the whole, except it's fascinating. When black men start putting on uniforms, she sees black troops at one point and has a very interesting passage that is appreciative of what these African-American men are doing that was not present earlier in the diary. The war wrought a change even with Maria uh, Lighting Daly uh, in that regard. But she, her stuff is great. She loves the Irish Brigade, a lot about the Irish in New York and, and, and uh, Mar and other key uh, Irish military figures. She has great stuff on the draft riots. Right. Uh, she's very hostile to Abraham Lincoln for the most part. It, mm. it's, it's, it's really a fascinating behind the scenes look through the eyes of a woman who, who projects the democratic, the New York democratic view of the war. Mm -hmm. Very ardent unionist, but not on board with a lot, but not on board with Republican policies. Right. Yeah. And, and that, helps us showcase the fact that the war isn't so clear cut for some people. And, 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 and we, we, we fall into that trap sometimes. We do fall into that trap. And it also showcases too many people tend to conflate copperheads with Democrats and assume that all Democrats end up being anti-war, sort of they're in the Vallandigham camp of things. And that simply isn't true. And, and Maria Daly's diary reminds us of that. You can be strongly, staunchly pro-union mm -hmm. and anti-Republican, anti-emancipation, believe that the Republicans are violating civil liberties, that kind of stuff, but still supporting the war and wanting the union to, to win out against the rebellion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was something that I found really interesting from my area of the world when I went to the Adams County Historical Society years ago and looked up the returns from the 1860 election and the 1864 election. Right. And you'd think that what happened to Gettysburg, Lincoln coming there and all that stuff would help carry that again for Lincoln. And it goes solid Democratic. Solid it's Democratic. It, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so you can't tell me they're not behind the war effort, but they're not for Republican policies. No, they are not. And and uh, you, the, the, the third essay in this book by a woman is Cecily Zanders on Elizabeth uh, Custer's three books. And Libby Custer also, I mean, she's also a Democrat. She and George Custer are Democrats. And and you get this this view, this Democratic view of the war and Reconstruction uh, through Libby Custer's three sets of memoirs. Libby Custer's often written off as somebody who's just a professional widow. She's like LaSalle Pickett. All she does right. is pump up her, her ex-husband's, I mean, her, her dead husband's reputation, and especially try to, to make him look better at the little bighorn. She does all of that, no question, but, she, but there's a lot more substance in her memoirs than that. And she's very good on what what people believed was really at stake in the war. People like her husband and herself thought it was a war for union. It's not, a, I mean, emancipation, okay, but black civil rights, no, not the least interested in that. Not, not really on board with the army having reconstruction duty. They don't like that. It, it, her books are, they, they give a, a, a nice on the ground view of what it's like to be an army officer's wife during the war, during reconstruction, and then out with the army in the West, a lot of insights into 
into what's going on with the army attitudes within the army looking outward and from outward looking into the army it's the the books are, are very useful in a way that most people have not appreciated and in fact have stated they're just not useful all they are is hagiography of george custer yeah i really had a connection with what she was talking about in texas after the war yes and thinking about what my peer group went through in iraq uh, or Afghanistan when when they were trying to secure the areas and and do this stuff and bring uh, quote peace or whatever yeah. to especially to Iraq and they and they were getting what they were getting it seemed like this is the 19th century equivalent of of that and and the army was not into that at all they weren't there they are in the midst of a hostile population and they're and they're being asked to do something that they would say that's not what soldiers do. This isn't what our job is supposed to be, dealing with all this these disgruntled former rebel civilians, and that that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, and no, it's very good on that. And uh, it's and, and of course the the aftermaths of wars are are really interesting, and her books are useful for that. What do you do with the defeated population? How do you deal with them? What? How do you How do you interact with them? How do you handle them? How tough are you with them? The army didn't want it. That's not what they wanted to do. <laughs> right, right. And a lot of the men just wanted to go home. The war just was over. wanted to go home. All, I mean, yes, and were very angry. I mean, most men did get to go home. It's fascinating to read the letters, especially from the citizen soldiers who were in units who were being kept in even a month longer, two months longer, three months longer than other units. They, from their point of view, this was a war to save the Union. We saved the Union. What what in the hell are we still doing in these uniforms now? How come we're not at home? Right. And some of these men didn't believe in a large standing army to begin with. And now we they're like, not. it's done. We don't need this anymore. It's anti-American, they would have said. The United States says we don't like large standing armies mm-hmm. going back to the, the aftermath of the Seven Years' War and the Quartering Act and what the British did. That's what regular armies do. Regular armies have great potential for tyranny. That's why we rely on citizen soldiers, not professional soldiers. And Libby Custer's books are good on the tension between the professional soldiers on the one hand and the citizen soldiers on the other. They have very different views uh, of, in many instances about a lot of issues. Yeah, it, it seemed like there was a, a lot of people who... It went back almost to what we saw during the revolution where some commanding officers or uh, brigade commanders and such didn't trust the volunteers. They liked, mm-hmm. they liked the men who were regular army yeah. and they were like, yeah, I don't like, I'm not going to trust them. They're not going on my flank. They're not doing whatever. Uh, that's fine. They'll just be in reserve all day. And, and um, the volunteers would look at officers and say, you can't treat me the way you can treat a regular. You, you treat the regulars like dogs. I'm a citizen. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this. I'm doing my citizens do. You can't, I'm not going to put up with that. It's right. Really- right. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's one of the under the things we underscore in Maria Daly's with, uh, with the draft riots, you know, you see that again, pop up where you can, yeah. you know, that tension is there. People are saying, you know, this is, this shouldn't be legal. This shouldn't no, be allowed be legal. to be forced. You're supposed to ask people to serve. You're not supposed to force them to serve. And of course, both sides did it. Yeah. And the Confederates just did it a year earlier because they right. were running out of men before the United States was. Right. I always thought it was funny. Some people would, uh, some people who were more lost causer than other people would often pick on Lincoln because he did the draft. And I'm like, the Confederates did it first. 
<laughs> it was well, both it, sides there. I think that, John, that that to me has been one of the most interesting as I've gotten older and mm-hmm. and thought more and more about all of this stuff. One of the great the, the whole notion that this is a state rights society that's fighting against the kind of behemoth Lincoln administration that's that's insinuating itself into all aspects of citizens lives. The Confederates not only do everything Lincoln does, they do it before Lincoln does it. And then they do way more than Lincoln does because they have to, to keep the war going. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's nothing equivalent to the tax in kind in the United States uh, where, okay, we're not only going to tax you, we're going to take 10% of your crop. They never do that in the United States. The the kind of impressment that the Confederacy has, it's the Confederates, the Confederate government becomes the most intrusive in us, in American Mm -hmm. history by far until deep into the 20th century. And and it's just interesting sometimes to listen to people attack Lincoln as a tyrant when everything he did, Davis did, and, and more, and more. It was almost like they had to go into overdrive with consolidating power to have any kind of viability. They, there done. are no... I mean, the Confederacy has state-sponsored industries, wartime in, powder works, uh, Ordinance works. There's nothing equivalent to that in the United States. The United States has a free economy that provides everything you need to fight a war and all the consumer goods you need. The Confederates don't have that. They, mm-hmm. they build state-sponsored industries in a way that the United States did not. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting. There, um, there's an old, old book by a historian, not a book, it's, it's only a kind of a long essay, by a woman named Louise Hill called State Socialism in the Confederacy. Uh, and it really gets at, and it's it's almost 100 years old now, but it gets at some of these themes of the things the Confederate state did to maintain a war effort that the United States never did during the Civil War. The United States did plenty, but not as much as the Confederacy did. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, thank you everyone for being here in the chat. I've placed the link in here for the book, so you can go check that out. I'll place it in here again. I want to bring a, a comment in from uh, Ben Brockenbrawl from YouTube. Can you comment on the Haskell memoirs? A stirring work, but another confederate who seems especially in every important place during the war. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's, yeah. the, the Haskell, the Haskells, there are various versions of, of the Haskell's writings, uh, and, and there are various Haskell's uh, in the war as well. I think that their books, if you're careful with them, uh, are very useful. But but he doesn't, he's not as bad as Henry Kidd Douglas uh, in oh, I Rode with Stonewall, <laughs> which Bob Crick has always said should be titled Stonewall Road with Me. <laughs> It's but but yes, there is some of that in and there's some of that in most memoirs actually that were kind of everywhere and not all of them. Uh, And then there are people who are everywhere. Uh, Porter Alexander, whom I wrote about, I wrote about his two books in the first of these two sets of essays. Porter Alexander is everywhere. He's everywhere from First Manassas. I mean, Longstreet's title could be Porter Alexander's. He's from First Manassas, First Bull Run through Appomattox. And even when Longstreet goes off to Southside, Virginia, Porter Alexander stays back and is at Chancellorsville. And then after Gettysburg, he goes west. He even gets in on Chattanooga and all of that. He's in on on all. He doesn't have to pretend to be every place. He was every place. Mm-hmm. But others perhaps suggest that they're a little more central than, than they actually were. Yeah. I wouldn't write Haskell off, however. I think Haskell, that the Haskells are worth looking at. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us 
uh, well, at least my generation, uh, we were brought up on the old Sam Watkins stuff. And that was like our yeah. first memoir where everyone uh, had it. Yeah. Everyone did it. And he was supposedly everywhere. And, everywhere. And he and was at his headquarters. He's, he's also every man. He's not only everywhere, he's every man. And he's used right. as every, yes, he's, I have to say, and I don't even know why this is true, John, but I have, I never fell under the sway of, of that book. I, yeah. I mean, it was, it was Margaret Mitchell's favorite book, favorite civil war book. Uh, and it's gone through innumerable printings, probably been in print almost continuously since it came out. But I never, and, and uh, Ken Burns loves Sam oh, Watkins. Yeah. Oh yeah. Shelby, Shelby Foote loves Sam Watkins. He's kind of irresistible. But he's never been irresistible for me for some reason. Mm. Mm. But you loved him early on. I, I didn't. Well, I didn't love him, but it was like one of those guys just intrigued me. It's like, yeah. how is this guy everywhere? When, when <laughs> you, you, know, you you are you are an enlisted man uh, who should be on the line, and you're in Hood's oh. headquarters in Atlanta. And he's like, always hearing things from famous that famous people are saying and observing right. things. Right. Yeah. As a I'm private. Like, you know, I, I remember one time I'm like, you know, Clint Eastwood must check under his bed every night for Sam Watkins because this guy is everywhere. 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 <laughs> you know? No, it's true. Um, but that's that's interesting. It, it never uh, you didn't you didn't fall uh, fall under that one, which is good because a lot of us were tripped up by because we're like we heard it on the Ken Burns series. And we're like, who is this guy? What is yeah. going on? And the book sales just went through the roof for couple oh, age. Of course they did. And I mean, and, and the same with Mary Chestnut. Mary Chestnut is irresistible in some ways, but but she, yeah. what we have of Mary Chestnut, what most people have, there's some Joseph Reed says, Sam Watkins, the Forrest Gump of the Perfect. Army of Tennessee. Perfect, Joe. Thank or, you. Or the Waldo of the Civil War. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's in every picture, no matter where. If you look hard enough, there's Sam Watkins. Uh, he, he is, I, I, it, it isn't that I didn't fall under sway of some some books that I should have been more critical of early on. It's just that Sam Watkins wasn't, wasn't one of them. He'd be a perfect one to write about in a, in, in the, with these kinds of essays. However, Sam Watkins would be a really good book yeah. to take a hard look at and really see yeah. what's, what's useful and what's not and what's going on there. Yeah. That's, that'd be a, an amazing essay because just the name, people know the name right away. They, oh, they, they do. They do. Like, oh yeah. Sam uh, Watkins. Yeah. I mean, uh, Keith Keith Harris uh, wrote about uh, John Billings' hardtack and coffee right. in this book. And that's another one, an absolutely iconic common soldier book. And really, the for he and Carlton McCarthy kind of invented the common soldier genre yeah. with detailed minutiae and hardtack and coffee. Right. And uh, Keith found, I mean, that there's a lot more attention to ideology in in Billings's book, I think, that than most people realize. I think that one of the things Keith did a nice job of was teasing that out in his assessment of hardtack and coffee. Hardtack and coffee is still irresistible. I mean, it is just filled with with kind of nuts and bolts information oh, about yeah. hardtack. And I mean just about all about Sibley tense, about hardtack, about all Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing and inspired me so much that I have it tattooed on my leg. And <laughs> one, you, one of, you of course, make an appearance in the book. Uh, I in, do. In Keith's essay. That's <laughs> the first time I've made it in print in my life. Uh, well, Keith, your your Keith observations on John Billings are. Yeah, yeah. Essay. As far as when I did interpretation, it was like we went to Billings uh, yep. because we wanted to 
get things right about you know the little minutiae, right? You know, taking a thing from McCarthy, but yeah. take, taking the little stuff and being like, how did they do this with the Sibley tent, or how did they create winter quarters? Yep. That's what really inspired us, and I think far too often we overlooked what Keith was talking about with the underlying stuff that he would later do with the uh, Grand Army of the Republic and some other places where there's a, definitely a unionist sentiment throughout definitely. the entire book. Yes. And a lot of us miss that because we're too worried about the minutia of how do we do this with our, you know, cooking utensils or how do we do yeah. that? He's really good on that stuff, but he is a, it's, it's, he's not one of the people who would, would have said, let's shake hands and not talk about who was right or wrong. The union was right. For Billings, no question about it, was right during the war, is right after the war, and now let's talk about hardtack and and how we used our bayonets and what they were good for and what we didn't do with them and and so forth. Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, when I take people to Gettysburg or Antietam or whatever else, and we see the monuments there. I tell them these to me these aren't primary resources of the Civil War; they're primary resources of the 1880s, the 1890s. They are. Yes, and and. It kind of lined up with that with Billings because of him later going on to to do great things with the GAR and other veterans works. And yeah. I was like, this is the kind of person who would have been doing the monument dedications here and, and you know, going into that whole thing, which was just fantastic. I'm so glad that Keith talked about that and covered that because I know I missed that for a long time and I need someone to, like, kick me in the right direction. I And that <laughs> but, was really... To, to come back to the origins of these two books, that's really what Steve, Steve and I were looking just for a, a an approach to these iconic texts. So many people know about Billings, but almost nobody knows that about Billings. I mean, they don't. They, they know the other stuff we've been talking about, uh, that he's so useful in these quotidian details of what life was like for a soldier. Right. But he's more than that. And that's really interesting that he was more than that. But it makes sense when you think about the rest of the things that he did uh, as in the 80s and beyond. Right. Right. Well, I, will, I want to get some questions here in the uh, in the chat. But uh, Joe, right. Ricci, Joe Ricci uh, from Franklin is back on saying uh, with Watkins account of Franklin, beautifully written, but likely made up. Uh, Joe would Joe would know about that. I gotta come see Joe and Franklin. So so that and that raises the question. Okay, so what do you do with with Watkins? Then it's nice to have something beautifully written, but if it's made up, right? What, what possible use is it? That that's uh, right. and you can tell. I mean, you really can tell when people are are just. I read Lee's Lieutenants, of course, devoured them as a boy. The first time I went to uh, and really did the, the 1862 Valley campaign, it was very clear to me that Douglas Southall Freeman had never been to some of the battlefields there because the way he described them had nothing to do with what the ground looks like uh, on those battlefields. And that was a real eye opener for me. It, it's uh, it's what it, it, it makes you lose a little bit of uh, uh it just makes you consider a text differently. I still think Freeman is very useful in a lot of ways, but uh, he never went to some of those. He never went to some of those battlefields. It's clear. And and Watkins making up a great view of Franklin. That's that's interesting. But now, what do you do with it? Right, right. And if he made that up, what else did he? We always uh, we're often in the position of knowing a lot about something, and we can tell that X made something up about the thing we know a lot about. 
but it always raises the question, what about all the things I don't know a lot about? Is this person making up this stuff there too? I can't be sure, but if he's making this up, why wouldn't he be making that up as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the job of we historians. We have to be investigators and keep digging and trying to figure it out the best we can. And sometimes we slip and sometimes we fall and yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing to work on. I, I know that. Uh, Miranda, Miranda uh, since most memoirs have an agenda, so to speak, which memoir on Jackson would be the most balanced and realistic? Oh, boy. Wow. Well, a... <laughs> the most wow. balanced. I mean, there, there are a number that are very, I mean, you have to use Mrs. Jackson's book. That's an essential book, even though it's, it's doesn't even, doesn't pretend to be balanced but it certainly has material that isn't present anywhere else. I'm sure that part of Henry Kidd Douglas's book is useful and accurate, but a lot, but I don't trust it uh, all that much. You um, I'm just, I mean, so many people wrote about Jackson. I would say uh, realistic and, and reliable. If you, if you have Jed Hotchkiss's diary, which has a huge amount of stuff about Jackson in there. I would trust that pretty much because he's writing that down right in the midst of events. And I would, I pretty, and I trust him on Jackson, on Ewell, on Early, all those second core guys mm -hmm. with Jedediah Hotchkiss in, in his diary. But there we're talking about a diary, not a memoir. Right. Um, it's, uh, there's so much on Jackson. Um, yeah. And he was, yeah. uh, I mean, he was already, the, the mythology was already thick before the war was over on Jackson mm -hmm. because, he, because he was dead in such dramatic circumstances so early on. Right, right. Sean O'Hara, thank you for being here. Uh, what do good diarists have in their writing that makes them good primary sources for researching history? Well, I think good diarists, uh, what you want is a diarist who, who's writing a real diary, first of all. And, and that didn't go back and fix it up later uh, to, mm -hmm. to make it even better. If they're writing it, and I'll use Hotchkiss again in his example of, uh, about that, I think that Hotchkiss is, is, is excellent in, in that regard. And there are, of course, tons. I mean, there are not tons. There are hundreds of Civil War diaries that have been published. And on the whole, I would, I mean, you need someone first who is good at, at, seeing things and describing them. And everybody isn't good at that. I mean, some people, for example, have a good eye for terrain and other people don't. Some people are very good at describing terrain and then narrating what happens there. Uh, some people are better at, at, at better at getting a sense of, of feelings among their comrades than others are. Some are just nuts and bolts. We woke up, it was warm, and that was north, that was south, this was a hill. Others take time to talk about what's going on uh, among their among their comrades on the line, both their in terms of morale and, and expectations and responses to victories or defeats and so forth. So they're very different kinds of diaries. The very best ones combine all of those characteristics and you get not only the, the good day-to-day, -day, just the facts, this is what's happening, but also you get more than that uh, as they uh, as they walk around and, and talk about things and jot them down that night. Uh, it's it's uh, I on the whole trust diaries more than memoirs if you're writing about if what you want is information about the war this is I know this doesn't always hold true but in general the farther away from events you are the less reliable I think it is unless the person writing retrospectively 
has a diary or letters from the war that they're really relying on. Uh, if they have that, then that changes, and they're using them as sort of primary sources to to undergird uh, what they're writing. That's a different situation, but lots of them don't. They just sort of have their imaginations, and the, and and as each decade ticks off, I have less and less and less confidence in a memoir as something that's really useful in any serious way to reconstruct what actually went on during the war. Mm -hmm. that's, that's such an interesting point, Gary, about how people describe things in the moment uh, because they're going to describe it differently because their writing is going to be different. What they perceive as interesting is going to be different. Yeah. You're going to have people in the same regiment who see tunnel vision and they yeah. see what's in front of them and they don't know what's going on in their flank or anything like Absolutely. that. And Absolutely. I've seen it when we go out and we do tours where I have some people who I collaborate with who are more tactical in their tour. They're talking about tactics and they're talking about all this stuff. And I'm talking more about, forgive me, the grotesque stuff that's going on on the line. Like what's the impact of these things going on and, and, yeah. and the mental strain and stuff like that. So even we as historians, we know we're not all alike as far as how we're going to tell the story. And the diarists are the same way. They're not they're the, same the same way. And sometimes you just get these, these, these jewels that give such compelling detail. The, the Confederate artillerist who just finds himself uh, below Oak Hill on July 2nd, and he's looking down Iverson's line, and he writes in his diary that night that there are, I think it's, and I may have the number wrong, 81 or 82 men who are in a perfectly straight line, shot down in a perfectly straight line. 79 fell to the back, three fell to the front. And you get a sense of how that first volley that hit Iverson's brigade as it came off the hill what incredible damage it did. It knocked down. These guys are right in line. He said their feet are perfectly in line of uh, where they went down. It, it's, you get those kind of, or, or you get George Templeton Strong in his wonderful diary on the battlefield of Antietam. And he talks about walking behind the Georgians line below the cornfield. And you, he says, you can see exactly where their line was by the row of dysenteric stools uh, that were behind it. These guys all had, They'd been eating green apples. They all had diarrhea. And he said, okay, they're, they're, they're the stools. The line is just right in front of that. It's those kinds of details are amazing. And some yeah. diarists include them and others, it would never occur to them to include them. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and there's so much good writing out there from these, from these people. And it's just fascinating. Uh, Richard Houston, thank you for the question. Is it possible to make a useful generalization regarding Southern post-war memoir views on slavery slash race? Does it change as the lost cause sentiment sets in? I think there are some generalizations. That is a good question, Richard. There are some generalizations, and most of the generalizations are uh, that slavery wasn't a brutal institution, that a lot of slaves were loyal, a lot of Confederate slaves were loyal, and so forth. That kind of thing is pretty common. Uh, in the lost cause literature, you get heroic soldiers, uh, very supportive women and kind of loyal slaves. Those are the way they break down the Confederate population uh, in a lot of the in, the in the lost cause narrative. But you also get the, you, you get anomalies there where people are very Porter Alexander, for example, in fighting for the Confederacy is just very casual about the fact that Confederate soldiers executed black men at the crater. He's just matter of fact about it. He says they did it a lot more of it than should have happened, he said, but it did. And, and this is, you know, they viewed it as uh, they viewed the use of black troops as sort of 
a move toward and to, to try to promote a, a slave insurrection in the Confederacy, and they were they were agitated about it. The white Confederate soldiers were, and so they shot down Confederate soldiers. He's not mm-hmm. trying to to sugarcoat that or hide it. Uh, others uh, would would deny it in some lost cause literature, but not everybody does. And so there's a there's a variety of how they deal with slavery and race. But on the whole, most of them would say the war wasn't about slavery. It's about state rights. Slavery wasn't a brutal institution and so forth. You would get and, and a lot of loyal slaves populating a lot of these uh, of these lost cause memoirs. Mm-hmm. I'll take one more question here that is about my uh second in line for best general in u.s history uh u.s grant uh how does u.s grant who's first winfield scott is my first well i winfield scott's my top five i thought you were going to say george marshall okay so grant how does grant's memoir stand up well grant's memoirs in in okay this is just my view u.s grant has the the best memoir written by anybody on the united states side military or non-military and I think the best memoir overall. I think Porter Alexander is the best Confederate memoirist, military or non-military. Grant's the best on the Union side. Grant combines an ability to write really well and evocatively, and especially earlier in the memoirs, before he's literally racing to beat cancer and finish it. I mean, his passages on the war with Mexico and on the early part of the war in the West proceed at a much more leisurely pace, a lot more detail, a lot, but there's a lot of humor in Grant's memoirs. As he gets toward the end, he's just sort of giving you the, the facts and getting you to the end as he is. And then, I mean, he, because he knows he's dying. And so he's rushing at the end, but granted his best and he's very good is in a class by himself. I think among mm-hmm. civil war memoirs, I think mm-hmm. he's in a class by himself. I think Porter Alexander is, is close to him. And uh, and in a class by himself among Confederates. Yeah, yeah, that's poor Alexander stuff is is fantastic too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the thing I wanted to ask Gary is who's your favorite memoirist from the Civil War? Well, my, I, I I I my favorite memoirist. I just named my two favorite memoirists are Grant and Porter Alexander. Although I love Sherman because okay. even though he's kind of tedious, he includes a lot of long documents in his memoirs, but you also get Sherman in, in other places there. Jubal Early is, his memoirs are not as out there as you would think Jubal Early's would be because he wrote them in the immediate aftermath of the war. If he'd written them, they didn't come out till many years later. If he'd written them a lot later, they would have been a lot more controversial, uh, I Mm. think. Uh, But they're not as controversial as you might think uh, they would be. I don't like Joseph Johnston's at all. I, I, I don't like John Hood's. Uh, Philip Sheridan's are kind of boring. Um, <laughs> but but Grant's, Grant's, are, Grant's and, and Porter Alexander's are my favorites. Now, who do you wish would have done memoirs? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, I used to wish Robert E. Lee would have written a memoir, but he was such a bad writer uh, that I don't really... Anybody who reads his introduction to his father's memoir, he just he was absolutely in love with the passive voice. And I don't think he would have been I don't think he would have really written. He would have kept a lot away from the from the readers. I don't think you would have gotten a really revealing um, memoir from from Robert E. Lee. But Lincoln and Lincoln, you wouldn't from Lincoln either. Lincoln's not going to not going to really. So I say I wish they'd yeah. written them, but maybe I don't really wish they'd written them. <laughs> 
Lincoln would just remember have... people hadn't written them, but uh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're kind of painful to read. <laughs> That's true. Sometimes they are. And they're Lincoln... like oral oral histories now are the equivalent of memoirs. People who really rely on oral histories, boy, that's tricky because oral histories have all the qualities of memoirs. They're, they tell us more about when the oral history was taken. People get even with other people in oral histories. They always put the, I mean, it's uh, oral histories and, and, and two people who are in the same room for the same meeting and give oral histories. You, mm -hmm. you could, can't even imagine they were in the same room because the oral histories don't intersect at any point. They have completely different takes. And it's it's a wonderful way to remind ourselves of the difference between history and memory, that something mm -hmm. happens, people remember it differently, relate it differently, emphasize different things. Yeah, it, it's like it makes the job more difficult for an oral historian because you have to way more weave, your, weave your way through all this stuff. Yes, way more difficult. Yes. Yeah, and Lincoln's, Lincoln's memoir would have just been dad jokes the entire time <laughs> you know <laughs> like crazy jokes from kentucky or something you know i don't i don't know he really. had a lot of those and he was i yeah. mean lincoln, neither lincoln nor lee ever would have gone uh on oprah and bared their souls that's not <laughs> that's not how they operated yeah that's why i love if you, in terms of whose letters do i like the most i love sherman's letters i'll ask myself a question sherman's letters are just golden because there's no filter just out it comes you don't have to wonder what Sherman's thinking about something. Yeah, yeah. He has no filter at all. No filter. No, absolutely no filter. Just there it is. That's what he, and then he moves on. Yeah. You don't like it, that's your problem, not my problem. And Right. Uh, he, he means what he says, and he says what he means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. And as a historian, that's gold. It's gold. I, yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, I want to know in the moment what you were thinking, and Sherman, he <laughs> provides it every time. Every, Every time, whether he you want to hear it or not, he delivers. He does. Hey, everybody, I put a link in the chat uh, a couple times here on YouTube and on Facebook uh, for the LSU press site to go grab your copy of Civil War Witnesses and their books, New Perspectives on Iconic Works. There's also uh, the ability to go get the first book of the upcoming trilogy. It sounds like we're going to be doing some, some fiction, but it's not fiction. Uh, well, some might argue that some parts of of some the uh, original memoirs are fiction. In in uh, the in the in that book you're holding up right now, John, yeah. there's an essay by Jack Davis on on Loretta Velasquez. That's fiction. Her yeah. big account of her uh, of her exploits as a Confederate soldier, completely made up, completely made up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you are going to have to read it to find out. Uh, yes, right. But, but let me tell you, I've been studying the the Civil War now for. Over 30, well, well, let me see. It's, uh, I was eight, so <laughs> I'm dating myself here. Uh, well over 20 years. Uh, well, over, over, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, I'm bad at math tonight, Gary. Uh, but anyway, I learned a lot from these essays. And that's saying something when you can learn so much from one book, from essays, from multiple people. The writing is impeccable. I love the writing in, the, in this book. And, and the essays are amazing. And it really made me think about Longstreet a little bit differently than I thought about him. Definitely McClellan. Yeah. Uh, because we did a panel last year of In Defense of McClellan uh, on, at the, uh, in the Maryland campaign. Right. So I've always been kind of like wanting to poke the bear and now I have more ammunition to, <laughs> to do Good. that. Great. Well, I'm glad you got some things out of this. I'll take that yeah. as a high compliment. And, oh, yeah. uh, Steve and I certainly wouldn't have done a second volume and wouldn't be considering a third one if we didn't think 
that, that this is this whole project is worth doing. So are you in the early stages now of the next one, Gary? Yes. Uh, yes. Very early stages. I'm and I've picked my person. I'm gonna write about Fremantle. Uh, oh nice. And and Fremantle is a he's a treasure trove, an absolute treasure trove. Yeah. We're we're trying, and I won't say who, but I'm hoping we have some we are hoping we have an essay on Grant, probably gonna have an essay on Mosby. Um mm. and anyway, I won't it will It'll be about 10, 9, or 10 again. And there's, there's your teaser. Those are the teasers. That's right. <laughs> well, I hope when the next one comes out, you come back on and speak with us again. I'll send up a flare. I, again, I appreciate your invitation this time. This has been fun. Oh, Gary, I appreciate you coming on here. It's always fun to talk with you. And and I hope that we get to talk before the book. The next one comes out about something, whatever that is. Sounds good. And I uh, would love to have you back on anytime that you would like. And uh, it's just great to have you on and great to be re reunited digitally with you, my friend. Thank you.